unto me. Jesus, my Savior, is calling to me. Come, child, your struggle is done. He bore my burden on Calvary's tree. Gladly I rest in God's Son. Come unto me, all ye that labor, all who are heavy laden. Come unto me, come unto me. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. I am meek and lowly in heart. Come unto me. Come unto me. And I will give you rest. Come to the Savior, He's calling to you. All of your burden He'll bear. His words so tender are calling anew. Trust Him and rest in His care. Come unto me, all ye that labor, all who are heavy laden, come unto me, come unto me, and I will give you rest. <clears throat> Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, I am meek and lowly in heart. Come unto me, come unto me, and I will give you rest. I will give you Thinking about the uh, song Almost Persuaded that we just sang. How many, how many of you feel like that wasn't the traditional melody? Anybody? I don't know. I sang it differently. I don't know. So, okay. But uh, that, that song is great because it goes exactly along with our text today. We're going to go ahead and dismiss the kids ages four years old to fourth grade. Our children's church, four years old to fourth grade. <clears throat> we are going to be covering two chapters today in the book of Acts. If you want to open your Bibles to the book of Acts. Um, I'm not going to be preaching verse by verse through both, both those chapters, though. Okay, We're just going to hit some highlights here. But Acts chapter 25 and 26, they kind of give us the same story, but we're going to be focusing primarily on chapter 26. So let's go ahead, and I'm going to start reading in the middle of Paul's message in uh, Acts chapter 26, verse number 22. Acts 26, verse 22. <clears throat> it says, Having therefore obtained help of God... I continue on to this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer, and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead, and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. 
And as he thus spake for himself, Festus, which said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth of these things, before whom I also speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me <clears throat> this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. And when he had thus spoken, the king rose up and the governor and Bernice, and they that sat with him, and when they were gone aside, they talked between themselves, saying, This man doth nothing worthy of death or of bonds. Then said Agrippa unto Festus, This man hath been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. Let's open up in a word of prayer. Father, I need your grace this morning to preach your word in the exact way that you want it to be preached, that the truth that you want to draw out of this text would be the truth that comes out of my mouth. Father, I, I know that you have a heart for the lost and for those who are almost persuaded, but just not quite yet. And I just pray that you will, you will bless this message. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we've been going through the book of Acts, we're kind of coming to the close of it now. We've been tracing the theme of the church and how the church should function, what it should look like in the book of Acts. But as we've come to these last few chapters, that's become harder and harder and harder because the focus has shifted. It's not so much about the local church as it is the Apostle Paul, his trials, his arrest, and all those things as the, as the, chapter draw, or as the uh, book draws to a close here. But even as Paul's life is coming to a close in the book of Acts, we still see glimpses of God's truth, his heart for the church. And this morning's message, if you wanted to give it a title, you could call it God's Heart for the Curious. And I, and I pray that this message will have an effect of reminding us, of stirring us up to share the gospel with those who have questions. And I know I've preached on this topic many, many times in the book of Acts, but here's the thing. When you're preaching exegetically, you preach what the text is about, and you don't get to pick and choose, right? Okay, so God's word says what it says. But I want us to see God's heart to start with here. And just in the introduction, in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the Bible says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We aren't given a whole lot of verses that necessarily directly tell us what's on the heart of God, but this is one of those, those verses. And it, uh, people can debate till they're, they're blue in the face about the meaning of these verses, but we do know two things from this, from this passage, that God is long-suffering. And that word long-suffering means he puts up with us, right? He is patiently waiting for us. God is patient towards us, and he's not willing that any should perish. God does not desire people to die and to go to hell when they die. God wants all men to come to repentance. That is his heart. That is, what, that is his passion. John 3.16, probably the most well-known verse in all of Christianity. Let's go and quote it together. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I mean, it's, it's obvious, it's clear that God so loved the world, and you can't take that word world and shrink it down to a small group of people. That word world is used to show us that God loves everybody, the entire population of the world. That's how it's used here. And God, God loved us enough that he gave his only begotten son. Why? That son would die for our sins, would be buried and would rise again, that it, so that if we would just place our trust, our faith, and believe in him, we would not perish, but we would have everlasting life. God loves the world, and as his people, we ought to love everybody that God loves, shouldn't we? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19 through 20 says, To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto him, but hath committed unto us, 
the word of reconciliation. This was our theme verse at Ambassador Baptist College. But uh, God was, he has given us, he has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God. As believers, God loves the world. We ought to love the world. And he is trying to redeem lost mankind to himself. But 2 Corinthians 5 verses 19 through 20 says that the way he does that is he, he has given us the word of reconciliation. We have the message of the gospel. And God doesn't come and he doesn't normally speak to people out of a, a voice from heaven or lightning bolts, or signs in the sky, right? That's not normally how God operates throughout all of history. God has chosen to use his people to be his mouthpiece, to give the word of reconciliation to the world. In fact, we are called ambassadors. Ambassadors. An ambassador is somebody who represents the king to another country. He brings the king's dictates, the king's message to those people. And we are ambassadors. And it says here, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. God is trying to call men to repentance, to bring them to himself. He is drawing men to himself. But how does he do that? He does it through you and me. As though God did beseech you, what's the next two words? By us. God speaks through his people. We are his mouthpiece. And in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Why? Why are you all these things? That ye should show forth the praise of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. As believers, we are called. We are a priesthood. We're a set-apart nation. We're a special people to God. But why has God lavished all these blessings on us, all this favor, all this attention on us? It isn't just for our own good. It is so that we would show forth his glory to all of the world. Can we truly say that we are acting like the people of God or the people that God has called us to be if we are doing nothing to spread his fame to those who do not know him as a savior? It's part of our identity as the people of God. It's our purpose. It's who we were called to be. God's heart is to see souls saved. And as Paul's life draws to a close, right, he is, he is on trial, eventually he will be killed by Emperor Nero. And the book of Acts is drawing to a, clo- to a close, but he doesn't stop proclaiming the gospel. Even in situations where he's on the defense, where he's in uncomfortable positions, Paul takes an opportunity to share the gospel. So in our text, we're going to see how Paul gave the gospel to somebody who was sincerely interested, curious about Christianity. And there are people all around us who are curious about Christianity, but to be honest, we oftentimes don't know that they are because we don't even talk to them. We don't even open our mouths. We're too afraid to say something. Most of the time, they aren't going to come to ask because they don't feel like they're going to get any answers from us either. You've heard the phrase, curiosity killed the cat, right? Curiosity sometimes does kill the cat. Okay, so, no. Except cats have nine lives, so I guess they get to survive multiple times. But, but curiosity, it's, it's sometimes it can be a bad thing, but it's not always a bad thing. Curiosity is what causes us to look for answers to the questions that we have. It uh, stirs the mind of the most ingenious inventors to create the things that they have created. Leonardo da Vinci would probably be one of those men who we would consider a, a genius inventor of things. But he once commented about mankind in general... And he said that mankind looks without seeing, listens without hearing, touches without feeling, and eats without tasting, inhales without awareness of odor or fragrance, and talks without thinking. But Leonardo da Vinci was a Renaissance man. He was a man who uh, used his five senses to discover and to learn new things. But this man was famous for, what, the Mona Lisa? But he also invented things. He created, among some of his devices, he created an early helicopter before we had motors. Okay? Um, he, cre- he, created, uh, he created a diving suit to be able to go under the water. 
uh, robotic knight. I don't know what the purpose of this was. Are you going to move him around on wheels and position him in just the right place? But a robotic knight is pretty stationary, right? Okay. But he created robotics before we had electronics and things like that. And so curiosity can do good things. Curiosity can also be disingenuous. People take an interest, but they're not really interested about the topic. It's kind of like when somebody comes up to you and says, hey, how was your week this week? Okay. And then you start gushing everything that's been going on <laughs> throughout your entire week. Nobody really wanted to hear that, right? Okay, so <laughs> that's the honest truth. We show curiosity, but sometimes we aren't actually really curious. <clears throat> they and sometimes we ask questions, and it's not really a question. It's more of, I just want to argue the point, right? Have you ever had that happen? Curiosity can be a good thing, but it can also be a bad thing. Have you ever gone door-to-door -door witnessing trying to talk to somebody, and you get into a conversation with them, and they're happy to talk about all kinds of religious things. The topics stimulate their mind, and it can become, to them, even more of a philosophical discussion. So how do we as Christians deal with the curious? People have questions. They want to know. And those questions, to be honest, are part of what is drawing them to God. In Ecclesiastes, uh, Ecclesi the, um, the preacher in Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity in their hearts, or the world in their hearts. And the meaning of that verse is this, is that God has put within us a sense of wonder, a sense of awe, a curiosity about the world around us. Why? Because it draws us to God. It, bring, it, it catches our attention, and it shows us that we don't have all the answers, that we need something that we are missing. And so the curious, they have, first of all, in verse number three of chapter 26, they have questions, right? They have, they have questions. In uh, Acts chapter 26, Agrippa uh, says unto Paul, thou art permitted to speak for thyself in verse number one, but then Paul stretched forth the hand and answered for himself. And he says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before they're touching, touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews, especially because I know thee to be an expert in all customs and questions. Agrippa was a man who had questions. He wanted to know the answers. In fact, uh, in the previous chapter, when Felix comes to Agrippa and says, hey, I've got this guy in prison, and the Jews want to kill him, but I don't know what to do with him. Agrippa and Felix, they have this discussion about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you are a lost person in Roman culture and you've never seen anybody rise from the dead, how many of you guys have ever seen anybody rise from the dead? Anybody here? No? Okay. So if we talk about the resurrection of the dead, that seems strange. That seems weird, right? You're going to have questions about it, okay? And Agrippa and Felix, they had questions about the resurrection of the dead and this whole discussion that Paul is having. And so the curious, they have oftentimes legitimate questions, even if we may not realize it at the time, those questions are honestly asked. Uh, the resurrection was a debatable topic for, the, for these people. And Agrippa was half a Jew, okay? He was half Jew. So he was aware of religious themes that the Jews would have been discussing. Um, in verse uh, 19 of chapter 25, it says, but had certain questions about him of their own superstition of one Jesus, which was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. But Luke makes it clear that the central issue in question was the resurrection. I don't know about you guys, but um, when I was trained in evangelism as a, as a teenager in some of the churches that I was in growing up, I was told that when you are trying to witness to somebody, you should never let them ask questions. Always just keep on pressing forward through the plan of salvation. Get that Romans road in there. Get them to pray a prayer, and boom, they're saved, right? Okay, that's, that's how I was taught. I was even taught, put your foot in the door. Don't let them shut the door on you. No, all these things are wrong, okay? I'm just saying this. All these things are bad, okay? Honestly, though, questions are the, are the window to the soul for that person. They are telling you what's important to them. We can take those questions and we can have an opportunity to, to give them the gospel through those questions. That's, uh, Paul doesn't deal with these questioning people the same way that I was taught as a young person. Paul realizes that the questions are actually important to their understanding of the gospel. They need to know these answers to understand what they truly need. And you may not always see the connection. Like, think about this. If a person you're, you're witnessing to brings up a question about Noah and the flood, okay? Seems like a side issue. We don't need to discuss Noah and the flood, do we, right? 
But you know what? Maybe that question is brought up because they just can't believe in the miraculous, right? Or Jonah. Have you ever heard of Jonah? I, I remember uh, Lester Roloff was preaching. He was talking about this little boy who just couldn't believe that, that Jonah was swallowed by a little tiny fish. Okay, so, you know, <laughs> and so he was by a tiny fish. But anyways, but we, we, we ask these questions maybe because they don't understand miraculous things because we don't see those every day. What about uh, questions about creation? That might seem like it's a sidetrack from the issue, but it's not. Because if they have questions about creation, maybe they have questions that the Bible can actually be believed and depended on, right? That's kind of an important issue to settle. Can the Bible be trusted? If it can't be trusted to tell us about creation, can it be trusted about other things? Even a question about Christians who sin and hypocrisy in the church. How many lost people have that question? The honest truth is we are all hypocrites at some point or another. Every single one of us, even the people who just are out at Walmart, not, in, not even at church right now, are hypocrites at some point or another because we aren't what we want to be and we fall short. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But that's an important question, right? Because if a person says, hey, what about all those Christians who they say they're supposed to love people and then they treat them like this? Is that an important question to the gospel? It might be because they might be asking this. They might be saying, you, you say your, bio, your gospel has the power to change lives, but I don't see it in other people, in you guys. Isn't that kind of important to deal with? Questions reveal the heart. The questions we ask them can draw out the heart, but the questions they ask us, they, they reveal the heart. And so such questions are not necessarily side issues, but they are at the heart of soul winning. They're the, they're the information those people might need so if we spend more time listening and having conversation with people, we might be able to see them come to an understanding of the gospel rather than concluding that they aren't serious about the gospel and moving on. So how does Paul interact with those who have curious questions? First thing we see here is that Paul doesn't shut down those questions, right? He doesn't shut down the questions that they have. He doesn't ignore them. Paul actually answers those questions. In verse number eight, Paul goes on and he says, why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? And then he goes on and he tells his testimony and he explains this truth of the resurrection. But Paul seeks to actually explain the resurrection. He seeks to actually answer the questions that they have. He says, why should it be thought impossible that somebody should rise from the dead? Seems impossible, but if the premise that God created the world is true, does that God not have the same power to raise a man from the dead? If the premise that God uh, delivered Israel through the Red Sea, again, these were Jews, God delivered Israel through the Red Sea to escape from Egypt is true, then shouldn't God also have the power to raise a man from the dead? He's saying, why is it such an impossible thing with you that God should raise the dead? And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, is key to the gospel. Paul does not back down on it, on the resurrection of Jesus, because if Jesus had not risen, then there is no salvation. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17 says, And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and ye are yet in your sins. What that verse means is if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then your Christianity is worthless, right? And it has accomplished nothing. You're still in your sins, standing before God, who you will eventually give an account to. Bible says, as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. We will all give an account for our sins someday. So if Jesus hasn't died, we're all stuck with that sin, with nothing to do with it, and we will give an account. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is, is important. Paul then goes on, in, uh, and he gives them evidence for his claim. He gives them evidence that they could verify he doesn't just tell them what to believe and expect them to believe it. Paul gives them the evidence for the resurrection. The gospel isn't merely about preaching at people, okay? That's key. Often in the book of Acts, Luke says that Paul reasoned with his audience. What does it mean to reason with somebody? Have a discussion, back and forth, a dialogue, right? Answer, question and answer, okay? That is reasoning, showing evidence for something. And Christianity is reasonable, and we should not be afraid to give those answers. 
<clears throat> Christianity can hold its own. And I think sometimes we aren't confident in our own abilities, and that's why we retreat and we don't give those answers. But God can give us what we need to say. Luke chapter 12, verses 11 through 12, Jesus said, And when, ye are, when they bring you into the synagogues and onto the magistrates and powers, take no thought how or what ye shall answer or what ye shall say, for the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what ye ought to say. Paul's defense is not overly complicated. He gives what God told him to give. And he does, he does give them seven witnesses to the truth of what he says. The first witness to the truth of the resurrection that he gives is his testimony. In uh, verse, <clears throat> verse 9, he begins and he says, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus, which things also I did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them, and I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme, being exceedingly mad against them. I persecuted them even unto strange cities. So Paul brings in his testimony, and then he goes on and talks about his experience on the road to Damascus, where he meets Jesus Christ face to face, and, and, and Jesus... Uh, reveals himself to him, and, and Paul is saved, and then Jesus commissions him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. But Paul starts off with this piece of evidence, his testimony. I know sometimes we're worried to witness to somebody because we think that it's too hard. I'm not going to have all the right answers that I need to have. But the one thing that every Christian has is you have a testimony. You have a story of what God did in your life to bring you to himself. And you can share that. Your testimony can be one of the greatest evidences that people will ever see. Especially if they knew you before you got saved, which some of these people knew Paul before he got saved. So press into that testimony. Show them how God changed your life. Paul says, I persecuted Christians. That was me before. But now I'm not like that. Now I'm preaching that same message that I was persecuting in the past. So he gives his testimony. And then he, he, he verifies that by mentioning that there were people who could, ver who could testify to his experience. He goes on and he says um, in verse number 12, Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom thou per persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things which I, which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom I will show, to open their eyes and to turn from, dar from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inherit among, inheritance among them which are sanctified. Wherefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem throughout all the coasts of Judea, then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. But as Paul was traveling on this road, there were other men that were there alongside of him, and they were able to be a witness to the truth of the message that he said. And you could call up those witnesses. They were still alive. He also mentions the Jews who knew him beforehand. Um, he, he, talks about, uh, <clears throat> he talks about those who, who uh, could testify to his previous lifestyle, even there in the, in the council in which he was being tried. He also appeals to Agrippa's knowledge of Judaism. And this is so important. When you are witnessing to a curious person. You need to try to figure out what that person has already, already knows and believes. Paul knows a little bit about Agrippa and his reputation as a man of knowledge about Judaism. And he builds off of that knowledge. He appeals to Agrippa's knowledge. Paul also goes back and he, and he references the scriptures and points to them as proof of the resurrection. He, and then he mentions God's protection in his life as evidence the things that God is doing in his life now. We, we preached recently about providential protection of Paul in his life. But the Jews could have killed him at any time. But God worked to, pr to protect him and to preserve his life. 
And so I think one of the ways that we can show people the truth of the gospel is to tell them what God is doing now. God is active today in our lives, is he not, as believers? It's not just something that happened when we got saved. What is God teaching you today? What is he changing in your life? And what has he done for you lately? But then Paul also references the heavenly vision or the miraculous experience that he had. Your salvation, it may not be as flashy as Paul's, but it is just as much of a miracle that God worked in your heart. So Paul answers the questions. He also presents the gospel in verses 19 through 20. Whereupon, O King King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. Now Paul summarizes man's part in receiving salvation in these verses. He says, first of all, that they should repent. Repentance means to change your mind. It means to look at, look at your life and the sin that you have committed and to agree with God that that is sin, that you stand as a sinner condemned and judged before God. The Bible says uh, that we are all sinners, but it also says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we acknowledge that we are sinners before God. We change our mind about our sin. We also change our mind about what's going to fix that problem. A lot of people try to earn their salvation by doing things, by getting baptized, going to church, giving money. Those things do not save you. And you must repent of depending on those things to get to heaven. The only thing that can save you is the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. That's it. Jesus Christ was the only one powerful enough to save you. He was the only one good enough to save you. All of us are sinners, and no, no other man can save you. You can't save yourself. And you've got to repent of that. Turn from your sin, and then it says here, and turn to God. This is the idea of placing your faith in Jesus Christ, saying, I can't save myself, but I need you, God, to save me. I'm turning to you. I place my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ. Now, if you're reading this in English, it looks like there's three things that are required to get saved. It says that you should repent and turn to God, and then it says what? Do works, meet for repentance, okay? I'm going to explain that real quick because it does not mean what it looks like in English, okay? That phrase is actually what we call a participle. Any of you guys know English? No, maybe? Okay. So a participle is not, the, uh, is not a main verb, Okay. It is something that modifies the verb. It describes the verb, okay? So what Paul is saying here is repent and and turn to God at the same time as you are doing works meet for repentance. The idea is that this is the evidence. This is what flows out of your repentance and your faith in Jesus Christ is those works meet for repentance. It's not a requirement for salvation. It is the fruit of salvation. So there is, no, there is no separate plan in, the, in this passage of salvation for Jews or for Gentiles. It's all the same plan. It's all the same gospel. It is repentance and faith. Turn from, cha- turn from your sin, change your mind about your sin and your righteousness before God, and then place your faith in Jesus Christ. Turn to God. And faith means to trust. Trust in Jesus Christ as, the sa- as your Savior. And this is the question that we need to ask is, Has there been a moment in their life that they have placed their faith in Jesus Christ? Have they turned? That's that's an action. It's a motion. They repent and they turn to God. They place their faith in God. So true repentance is seen in a changed life. That's what we get from this phrase, do works meet for repentance. Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10, we know, says, For by grace are ye saved, through faith. You are saved by grace. Grace means it's, it's a free gift of God acting on our behalf, right? Okay, that's, that's grace. God is freely acting on our behalf to save us, and the way we get saved is through faith. It says, and that not of yourselves. It's not the works that you do. It is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. But then what, where does he go from there? He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Works don't save a man. Doing good things does not make you a Christian, but it is the natural outcome of becoming a Christian. That is what Paul is saying here. 
So Paul gives him, he answers his questions, he gives him the gospel, and then he takes him back to scripture and he reasons from those scriptures in verse 22 through 23. It says, having therefore obtained help of God, I continued on to this day witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than that which the prophets and Moses did say should come. So basically Paul says this, the message I'm preaching, it's what Moses preached. It's what all the prophets preached. You Jews, you're rejecting this, but it's what your own prophets preached. And then he tells us what they preached. Verse 23, that Christ or the Messiah should suffer and that he should be the first to rise from the dead and show and should show light unto all the people and to the Gentiles. So Paul points out that the Old Testament scriptures, they spoke of a Messiah who would die for our sins. Isaiah 53. Let's go and turn there real quick. Isaiah chapter 53. <clears throat> this text is what they call the, the prophecy of the suffering servant. It's these three chapters surrounding Isaiah 53. But in Isaiah 53, starting in verse 1, it says, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground, he hath no form nor comeliness, and when we should have seen him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. But he is despised, whoever this servant is, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded. Why? For our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep, we've gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. He hath made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he hath done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When, the, when thou sh shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, and he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And here we have this description of the Messiah, this prophecy of the Messiah. And it clearly says that he would be bruised, he would be beaten, he would die. It says cut off. And that is the idea of, of dying. He would die for the sins of the people. And so Paul goes back to the scriptures and he gives Agrippa the gospel. Why? Because the gospel message is what we need to hear. It is what transforms lives. Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is the message of scripture about their sins, their need of a savior, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for their sins, and repentance and faith that they need to hear. And we only know that message because the Bible tells us that truth. Romans 10, verse 17 says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. People do not need our opinions. They do not need our politics. They do not need our, our ideas, our philosophies. What people need is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit joins with his word to create conviction and faith in the heart of a person. Paul doesn't necessarily quote any Bible verses here because Agrippa knows the verses but he does point him to the teachings of those scriptures, that the Messiah would suffer, that he would rise again from the dead, that Israelites would be saved, and that Gentiles would also be brought in and would be saved. Verse 24, after he's declared this, he, he says, uh, and as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning hath made thee mad. What we see here is that sometimes those who hear will be violently against what we have to say. 
Does that mean we don't say it? Does that mean we don't give the gospel because there are people who will get angry at us and don't want to hear it? No, we don't back down. Not everyone who hears what we have to say will receive that message. Some will be bitterly antagonistic to it, but it's what they need to hear. I love this illustration. Imagine there is a, a bridge across, uh, I don't know, let's say that's the Golden Gate Bridge. That's always in all these movies and like aliens come from space and destroy it and all this kind of stuff, right? Okay, so you're going across the Golden Gate Bridge and there's this big, huge gap in the bridge because a meteorite came and crashed through it and their cars continuing to drive, and you know that, they're, they're, that the bridge is out, and you just stand there, and you say nothing. What happens to those people? They die. What if you try to stop them, and you say, hey, the bridge is out up ahead, but they honk at you, and they flip you off. Do you stop telling people? You say, fine, I'm done. I'm going to walk away, and this is it. Do you? Should we? No. We don't stop just because people get angry at us, because what's at the end of What's at, what's at stake? Their lives are at stake, right? They're going off a bridge. They're going to die. It is even more important for us to give the gospel, even if people get angry at us and people don't like it. Because what's at stake is worse than falling off the Golden Gate Bridge. What's at stake is an eternity in the lake of fire because they have rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior. And if we stand there and we keep silence, we are just as guilty as that person on the bridge who didn't warn them before they drove off. So we don't stop just because people say you're crazy. Paul tells Paul, uh, Festus tells Paul, you're crazy, you're beside yourself, you've got too much learning. Here's the question, are you willing for people to think you're crazy for believing in Jesus? Are you willing to let them think that? You ought to be because it's important. Isn't this why so many of us won't talk to people about salvation? Because we're afraid of what they will think about us. We are afraid they will think we're crazy. We will afraid that they won't like what we have to say. But Paul did not stop just because he was violently opposed by Festus. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 20 through 27 says, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling box, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God has, caught, God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of this world to confound the things which are mighty. The world may look at all the things of God and say, that's foolishness, that's crazy, and they oppose it. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world. Paul then goes on and he asks questions of Agrippa. So Agrippa has questions, Paul has questions. In verse 27, it says, King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? Paul asks questions to convict the conscience. Questions penetrate to the heart. They get us thinking. When you study Jesus' interaction with the people, you will see that he asked a lot of questions. That's actually the main way that he interacted with people. When you're trying to share the gospel with people, you should ask them questions, questions like comprehension questions. What is sin? Did Jesus stay dead? What is faith? Okay, those are comprehension questions. Ask questions about what they think and what they believe. How do you think a person gets to heaven? It's a good place to start. Do you believe that you are a sinner? Also ask decision questions. Are you willing to place your faith in Jesus Christ today? Or do you have any questions that don't make sense about salvation that, that I could help you with? Paul asks Agrippa a question that penetrates his heart. Do you believe the prophets? Jesus Christ was prophesied thousands of years before he came to earth, lived among us, was, was crucified, buried, and rose again. The prophets foretold all of this. Do you believe the prophets? And then he goes on in verse 27, and he says, I know that thou believest. He knew that Agrippa believed these, these things from the Old Testament. Agrippa took his religion seriously, and he knew what the prophets had said. And Paul is pointing out by this question that if what they said is true, then Jesus must be the fulfillment of those prophecies. But he makes it personal. 
He says, do you believe? He doesn't say, did the prophets say this? No, he says, do you believe the prophets? In a way, he's backed Agrippa into a corner, and a decision has to be made right here and now. Verse 28 <clears throat> is the theme verse from which the last song we sang comes from. It says, then, said, then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Unfortunately, not everybody who hears the gospel will accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. Agrippa's response was, almost thou persuadest me. And I thought about preaching an entire message on that topic, but then we'd had two salvation messages back to back, it would have been, okay. I'm still getting it in, okay? So, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost is not good enough, right? Except in hand grenades, right? Okay, you could throw a hand grenade and boom, almost got it, but almost doesn't count for anything else in life. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Maybe you were here last week and you heard the gospel presented, but you chose to put off making that decision until a more convenient time. That's what Festus said, a more convenient time. The honest truth is a more convenient time doesn't actually ever come around. Maybe you're almost persuaded, but not yet. And I ask that you please don't put off this decision. When the, when the piano plays in a, in a few minutes, I, I'm, we're going to have an invitation. An invitation is this. We're asking you to come forward if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Let us show you how you can know that your sins are forgiven and that you are going to heaven. It is also an opportunity for Christians. If you have been silent when you shouldn't have, to come forward, confess that to God, to make that right and to ask him to give you the boldness that you need to declare the gospel. Again, our whole study of the book of Acts revealed one thing that was common to every single person who was filled with the Holy Spirit. They were bold to preach the gospel. All these other things we could debate, and, there, and there's like groups of people who had these different signs of being filled with the Spirit, but there's one thing that always characterized them. They were bold to declare the gospel. So brothers and sisters in Christ, we must still give the gospel even if nobody responds even if people are opposed to us, our responsibility is to be faithful to give out the gospel whenever we can. God is the one who must give the increase. We, we know that uh, we may sow and another may reap, but it's all in God's hands. So as we see the, the end of days approaching, it is more likely that fewer and fewer people are going to get saved, but we must be faithful to declare the gospel to those who need it, circling all the way back to the beginning here. Why should we be faithful to declare the gospel? Why should we not be ashamed to preach the gospel? Why should we not be afraid of a bad response? And why should we not be deterred because we feel they're not going to receive what we have to say? Because God's heart for that person is that they would be saved. God loves them, and he loves them enough to have died for them. Do you love them in that way? that you would open your mouth and be willing to be rejected, be willing to even be hated by somebody. That's sacrifice, and it's a sacrifice less than death, isn't it? Jesus Christ loved us enough to die on the cross. Let's all stand, head bowed, eyes closed. <clears throat> Again, during this invitation this morning, got two questions. For those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, will you come and will you let somebody show you how you can settle that today? You do not have to keep on going throughout your life not knowing. That can be settled today. There is not going to be a more convenient time. Hebrews says, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Okay. For the Christian, should we open our mouth more? Give the gospel more? Show God's love more. I think Paul did. Even when he was facing death, Paul still opened his mouth and gave that gospel out.
Amen. Don't forget, uh, tonight, 6 p.m., we'll be having our teen night service. David will be preaching. And then afterwards, our business meeting after the service. Uh, Jeff, do you mind closing us in prayer today?